Welcome uh, to St. Paul's Worship. We really are uh, pleased you took time to join us today. Keep those coats on, uh, regardless of your questions and doubts. And welcome if you're joining us online. Everybody loves a good underdog story. Uh, from Rocky Balboa to Aaron Brockovich, uh, Owen Meany to Frodo Baggins, or maybe you loved the 1980s Miracle on Ice, uh, that upset in Lake Placid when the U.S. hockey team trounced the heavily favored uh, USSR. This morning, Jared just read for us one of the best-known recorded events in the Bible. And even if you've never been to church before, odds are you've heard of David and Goliath. And I remember meeting, uh, reading Malcolm Gladwell's book of the same name. And when I looked back at it this week, Gladwell uh, claims that uh, underdog victories are less miraculous and more achievable than we think. Now, we are halfway through our six weeks looking at the life of uh, King David of Israel and how what David did imperfectly, Jesus does perfectly and what that means for us. Uh, we're in about 1000 BC, and, and last week we heard how the prophet Samuel uh, anointed young David as the future king uh, behind the current bad king's back, better not call Saul. And today we come to probably the most famous event uh, in David's life. First, uh, we'll look at how this story is usually read, uh, the Malcolm Gladwell way, uh, the way our culture appreciates, right, the ultimate underdog story. And I'm going to call it the uh, I can do hard things, fight giants lens. Uh, we'll look at some of the pros and cons of that. There, there are some risks. And then we're going to wrap up by reading it through another lens, the God has done a hard thing champion lens. And, and we'll see the different kinds of lives uh, that these two different approaches could give us. So first, the I can do hard things lens. It's an obvious way to understand the David and Goliath story, and, and potentially it's an inspiring one, right? The story opens with the Philistines. They're a coastal people. They're going head to head with the Israelites over land ownership. We've got two armies, one on each mountainside, and there's a deep valley running between them, the, the Valley of Elah. And there's a massive man, uh, Goliath of Gath, and he steps out of the Philistine ranks to defy and taunt both the uh, army of Israel, but also to taunt Israel's God. And there is some scholarly dispute about how tall Goliath's uh, six cubits actually represents. Was it six feet or eight feet? But clearly he was enormous. And not only that, he had a huge advantage in technology. Uh, we didn't read the section that talks about all the equipment he had. He was wearing a bronze helmet. He had a, a coat of mail, which alone weighed 125 pounds. He had armors on his legs. He had a spear and a javelin of bronze. And uh, interestingly, it's the beginning of the Iron Age, and the shaft of his spear was compared to a weaver's rod. And some think this is because the tech in the spear was so new that the Israelites didn't even have a proper word for it yet. The Israelites were totally intimidated. Like this was shaping up to be a bloodbath. Like think Passchendaele. And then young David comes along. He's not even supposed to be there. Uh, he was probably about 15 or 16 and the uh, age for military service was about 20. 
And so he was sent by his father, Jesse, to bring food to his older brothers who were on the front lines. Like David's the uber guy. But David offers himself to King Saul to fight the giant, uh, refusing to wear Saul's armor, refusing to accept that anyone be allowed to defame God's name, uh, to dismiss God's power as uh, Goliath is so uh, blatantly doing. So he picks up five smooth stones, uh, he takes his trusty sling, and he heads out to meet the giant. Goliath, whose shield is so big that he needs staff to carry it in front of him, taunts David, threatening to turn him into bird food. But David's having none of it. And listen to this verse, it's really kind of amazing. This is David. You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This very day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that God does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. Of course, it's encouraging to look through this underdog lens and then make application to our own lives. I can do hard things. David stuns Goliath with one just quick, clean shot. And then notice that it says that David doesn't kill him with his own sword because he doesn't have one. He kills him with Goliath's sword. Leadership lessons. The bigger they come, the harder they fall. You may be the upstart, but with God on your side, you can fight the giants in your life. And this is our culture's appealing approach to interpreting the story. And there are some pros to using this underdog lens. But there's also some cons. There's a, there's a few risks we need to name. Humans can do hard things. Right, and I'm, I'm not just talking about the mother who gets a, a burst of energy to lift the car uh, to save her child. I'm talking about some of the very hard things that I know some of you have done. Like scientific breakthroughs, businesses built, uh, personal acts of sacrifice and courage for the poor, for the refugee. There's clearly plenty to admire in young David. While everyone else is paralyzed with fear, he trusts God and steps into battle. And he had his own lifelong battles with self-doubt and anxiety, which even a cursory glance through the Psalms that he wrote uh, reveals to us. But this be like David, you can do hard things approach, it's also got some risks. And the first is, is that it assumes that whoever wrote one Samuel wanted to make David the central character of the story. But the central character here, it's not David, it, the one taking the star turn, it's not Goliath, it's definitely not Saul, it's God. Once you put David at the center of the story, I can do hard things, the Bible quickly becomes a set of moral examples to follow. God blesses those who live good lives. Here are some stories of such people to inspire you. But there's risks here. Inspiring stories only get you so far. Do you really think an underdog movie is going to solve the crisis in the Middle East or the affordable housing shortage in our city? And if you tell me that I just need to be like David, well, I might make it to Wednesday, but then the self-doubt, 
it's going to come crashing back. And, and if this story is just going to be a version of work harder, Jenny, be your best self, and you'll overcome most of your problems, I'm not interested. It hasn't worked. And I don't think you are either. Because then there's no room for real people, right? I haven't always succeeded at hard things, right? And, and then life just becomes a line from that famous Queen song, we are the champions, no time for losers. Like that's actually a crushing worldview to have to live within, right? And it's divorced from the reality of day-to-day -day life and it's the root cause of all forms of exclusion, your fill in the blank, uh, age, sexuality, skin color, education, gender, it's the wrong kind, right? It's not good enough. No time for losers. And the I can do hard things lens, it obscures one of the clearest messages of the Bible, which isn't that God cares for and blesses those who've got their act together. It's that God showers God's mercy and grace on undeserving sinners unworthy people like me and you, people who can't earn God's love even if we tried, and a people who let God down time and time again. As we saw last week, uh, very soon we're going to see how David, despite his inspiring slaying of Goliath, was still a deeply flawed man with plenty to come that you will not be teaching your children to emulate. It never works putting people on a pedestal. They all come tumbling down, whether it's Ryerson or Dalhousie, Anderson, Shin, or Wig Stevenson. And I'm, I'm not saying there's no worth in the underdog reading of David and Goliath, but ironically, it can crush our spirits and it can obscure the truth about the incredible God of grace and mercy. So let's wrap up by looking at the other lens, the God does a hard thing, a champion lens, and what that kind of life could look like. So if the center of the story is not meant to actually be young David, a quick look at the wider context uh, can help. And, and as we mentioned last week, the Israelites, do you remember they had, uh, they really wanted a king like all the other nations, and so God gave them Saul. Uh, with God telling their current leader, the prophet Samuel, don't be upset, it's not you they're rejecting, it's actually me. And there's this like mounting sense of dread as you read through one Samuel, as King Saul makes one bad decision after another. Israel needs a better king. And so David is anointed, but has not yet taken the throne. And then today, how is Saul behaving? We didn't read it, but listen to verses 10 and 11. Then Goliath said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the other Israelites were dismayed and terrified. It was Saul's job to accept Goliath's challenge on behalf of his country. It was this man's job to lead. But the point here is not that David is able to muster courage when Saul can't. Uh, the point is, Israel needs a better king. And not only do they get one in David, they get a champion. 
In ancient times, uh, rival armies would sometimes agree to select individuals from each side to like battle out a conflict, right? Which was an excellent cost-saving strategy, both for human life, but also for property. And with the two people chosen being called champions, with the victory of the one champion being attributed to their whole army and their whole nation. David volunteered to be Israel's champion, to go into battle instead of them, to be their substitute, winning the victory they couldn't secure themselves, defeating the champion of evil and death. But David was a different kind of champion than Goliath, who clearly was not quaking in his boots about the pretty boy standing in front of him. Listen carefully to verse 40. Then David took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the wadi. He put them in his shepherd's bag, uh, in the pouch, his sling in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. David went with his tools as a shepherd. He came in weakness, no height. He had no height, no armor, no sword. He came as a shepherd, which was the bottom of the career ladder. And remember, what David does imperfectly, Jesus does perfectly. David defeats evil and death. He does it through violence. Jesus defeats evil and death by submitting to violence. God does the hard thing. God sends a champion, his very own son. God does the hard thing. God comes in weakness and lets the violence of the cross do its worst. No longer do we have to get our act together to fight the giants of our lives. We just need a better king. We need a victory won over the real giants in our lives, sin and death, a victory that then gets given to us. Israel needed a better king. That was David. We've been offered a perfect king. And Jesus defeats the giants of sin and death and when he does that, a countercultural way of living opens up for us. And we've only got time this morning uh, to look at uh, an example, one example of, of how this works. Conflict in our relationships. So think of a frenemy, a work colleague, maybe your girlfriend, your spouse. Imagine some conflict. Won't be hard to do. And one option, of course, is to deal with the conflict uh, like David did. Uh, like Goliath did, through violence. Uh, one in four women and one in nine men experience violence at the hands of their intimate partner in Canada. If you need help, speak to us. But imagine handling the conflict in a countercultural way, right, through what Jesus did perfectly. If we focus on God more than looking at our giant-sized problems, then we're going to see how God had to do a hard thing because we had to be forgiven so much. And looking at the cross, we're going to realize how everyone is sinful, everyone is selfish. And once you are able to decide, once you can decide that your selfishness is the bigger problem in the conflict than the other person's, then there's a pathway forward. Uh, maybe in work or in your marriage. Let me say it again. Once we're willing to accept that our selfishness just might be the bigger issue in the conflict, then there's going to be a pathway forward. Obviously, uh, it's great if the other person has the same uh, attitude. That's optimal. 
but you can only control yourself, only yourself. Coming in weakness, coming in humility, as our king did, is not being passive. It's simply having confidence in the right champion, which is why our Sunday gathered worship is so essential. And what we're doing this morning is deeply practical because by fixing our eyes on our champion, it keeps God at the center of the story of our lives. Like, I am actually not the center of my own life story. I'm not. God is. We need to fix our eyes on that, not on our problems and anxieties, giant though they may be, and real. And Sunday reminds us that evil and death do not have the last word Monday to Saturday. And Sundays refreshes us with the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks be to God. Amen.